0: Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here uh, again, and I thank you for uh, those who have uh, been able to come back after being sick, and i got to thank you for those who have been able to come back after a break. Father, I pray that uh, as we dive into chapter 12 and 13 of Revelation today, uh, that you'll do two things. Uh, God, number one, you open our eyes uh, to the reality that we are at war, uh, that uh, we are in the midst of a conflict that has uh, been in existence. And, and Father, at the same time, that uh, the second thing I pray that we learn is that, that you have already been victorious, and uh, God, we can hope and trust in you. But God, we also, uh, we keep our eyes on you. And so we pray that uh, you'll teach us what we need to learn from uh, this text today. Uh, God, may your spirit speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people divide the book of Revelation into two halves. And uh, and really, we're at that halfway point. Chapters 1 through 11, very much being in line with God and what he is doing in the world. And then chapter 12 and beyond, talking about the enemy, Uh, really up to chapter 20, the enemy and how God will deal with the enemy uh, that he is in conflict with. And that's where we kind of turn the page as we introduce ourselves to uh, the dragon and the two beasts and eventually uh, a city called Babylon, which is going to be not necessarily one of the three, but maybe another way to describe the people who follow after these three, who compromise with these three. And so we have, um, we have this chapter, which we're on the page. Um, we also, today, we'll talk about the number 666, which I was at a gas station uh, just this weekend, driving back from uh, my in-law's house, and uh, the, the thing I bought came out to 666, or the change back, or something like that, and, and it was the middle of the night, and she's like, oh, right, and, I, and I'm like, what's wrong? And she's like, $6.66, and I'm like... All right. And I was like, hope the rest the night. He goes, okay. She's like, I hope you're okay. <laughs> like, I think we'll be okay. Um, we have a lot of things that we think about when we, when we think about that number. Um, perhaps we think of movies that um, we watched when we were growing up in high school or re- more recently. Um, perhaps we think of uh, different theories uh, that come and they keep coming that talk about this number 666. For instance, uh, for a while, in fact, if you type this into Google, I just did this yesterday uh, while my son was at that sore trampoline park. Um, this came up. It looks kind of like this, um, and it's a square, and you have them um, all over products at Walmart. Um, you know, there's a theory that this line and this line and this line uh, stand for Uh, numbers, and they stand for 666. The UPC codes are the mark of the beast, so don't get one on your hand, right? Um, There's been other theories that go along with that as well, and so we want to talk about what that number means and how does it play a role in the story. Uh, Before we do that, one of the things we're going to recognize is that as these three characters are described, they are very much set up as a parody or a mockery or an imitation of how God was described and Jesus the Lamb was described, and how the Holy Spirit is described. Um, they are what we could call an imitation trinity, or a mock trinity, an evil trinity. We, we could describe them in that way. And, and we know things about imitation. They want to look like the real thing. Uh, in fact, imitation cereal is the best example. Mark Christian preached about that several months ago, uh, imitation cereal. And so, you know, instead of Fruit Loops, it's Fruit Spins. And instead of uh, Crispix, it's Crisp Six. And, and so it's like this, we want to get as close as possible to looking like the real thing, but we're really going to, we're going to sell you short. We're not going to be the real thing. So you're going to notice one of these beasts talks like the lamb or talks like a lamb. Well, it's not like he's bleeding like a lamb. It, why, why would John say he talks like a lamb? Well, he, he's a false teacher. He seems to be speaking, wanting to look like the lamb that teaches but he's actually the dragon. He speaks for the dragon. He's a false teacher. Um, you're going um, to see thrones and crowns. Why? Because there are things that imitate God. And this is true of idols as well. Idols are things that imitate God. They take the place of something that is supposed to be true only of God. And so let me also add some things. There's some things about imitation, um, imitation gods or imitation idols um, that are true in how we respond to them. Um, perhaps we put faith in them. Perhaps we follow them and listen to them to into their teaching. Perhaps we place our security, this is connected to faith, our security in them. So notice some of these things, not only in the fact that they're imitation, but also in how we respond to them. Oftentimes we respond to them as if they were God. And as if they were God-like. And so we're going to come to these three characters. Now, the, the beautiful thing about this in Revelation is that for John, You know this, he is not so concerned with some future event. He's concerned with all of history. He's painting a bigger picture than what we want him to paint. And so for oftentimes when people are saying this one moment in Revelation corresponds to this one event, whether it's Hitler or uh, Vietnam War, John is painting a bigger picture. And oftentimes it looks familiar. The four horses look familiar over and over and over again. In this story, uh, in this part of the text, he's going to tell the entire story of history. He's going to back up. He's going to tell what's called, um, in fact, I, I put it on the, the second black bar on your, your uh, first page. He's going to ta- tell the meta-narrative, which is the story above the story. The story that goes from the beginning of the creation of the world all the way to the decreation or the new creation. And this meta-narrative is going to be chapter 12, especially, um, and then 12 kind of bleeding into chapter 13, this meta-narrative. Now, how do we know this? Because he's going to include imagery in here from creation, from the prophets, from Moses, from Elijah, from Jesus, from the Gospels, from the Christmas story, from the cross, all the way up until his present-day audience. It's going to be the meta-narrative retold in a telescope form, or some people call it a kaleidoscopal form. I mean, there's all these pictures that are just coming from everywhere, and it's this story that's really kind of compounded down into this smaller story of the dragon. Yeah, it is. It's a shortened story of the dragon and this woman. So what I want to do on this first page for you is, is show you some of the echoes that we're going to hear. Most of these you're familiar with from the Old Testament. Um, but it's important for us to, to kind of go, oh, yeah, I, I'm going to put that in the forefront of my mind before I dive into Revelation. So the first one is this promise. Uh, someone call it a prophecy in the book of Genesis chapter three. Now, this is in the context of God handing out the, the curses that come because of sin entering the world and the curse that comes for the serpent. By the way, serpent and dragon have a lot of common commonalities. So the Lord says to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed. And you know this, but going on to verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, notice in our text, we're going to have a woman and a dragon. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, and we're going to hear about her offspring, I almost put on the worksheet, the offspring, but that was like a band when I was in high school. And so, um, so her offspring, I don't know why I made that connection. Uh, between her offspring and your offspring, you shall bru- uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this conflict already in Genesis 3.15 between the serpent or the dragon and the woman. We need to make sure we hear that echo. Then Genesis chapter 37, uh, let me paint the context for you. This is Joseph. He has now had a dream. And the dream is, is that his mother and father and 11 brothers are going to bow down to him at some point. Problematic dream, ends him in a pit, which ends him up in Egypt as the king over Egypt or second commander over Egypt, and they do bow down to him. But the dream is of the sun and the moon representing his parents and the 11 stars representing the 11 tribes of Jacob or 11 tribes of Israel, Joseph being the 12th son, Um, Bowing down to him. This woman we're going to see in our text is going to be pictured with sun and stars and some of the same imagery uh, used from this text. And it's common in other places as well. We've already mentioned in our studies previously Exodus 19. As they are led out of Egypt, God said, I bore you up on eagle's wings. I rescued you. And he uses this imagery. Did he really bear them up on eagle's wings? No, it's a metaphor. Um, And we're going to see that same metaphor brought back. But for the Israelites, for the the people reading the Jewish or Hebrew story, um, eagles' wings rescuing them is the Egypt, the flight out of Egypt. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, talking about the wilderness wanderings. Um, This is, of course, after the wilderness wanderings. And Deuteronomy is the reminder of the promises that God has made and that they have made before they enter the promised lands. And God said, I have brought you through, verse 15, I've led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground. Um, So I've brought you through this time of wilderness wandering, this time of tribulation, this time of difficulty. And the wilderness becomes symbolic of that for times of difficulty and times of Jesus' ministry, times of temptation. 40 instead of years, 40 days in the wilderness. Did he contend with scorpions and snakes? depends on if you talk about the temptations with Satan. Yes, he did. And so he wrestled very much with scorpions and snakes at that moment. And so God brings him through that. And then at the end of Jesus's temptation, angels minister to him. Okay. So God brings him through. Psalm chapter two was always seen as somewhat of a messianic Psalm, a promise. And the only thing I want to bring out of this, other than the fact that context is kings who are in opposition to God, hear that because we're going to hear dragon, beast, especially the first beast as being described as nations that have set themselves up against God with thrones and crowns. And at the same time, there is a king who is going to reign and he's going to hold a rod of iron. And, and this was very much that, that picture of the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to restore God's kingdom on earth, his reign on earth, this Messiah type king. One of the other texts that I want to just make us aware of, it's a confusing text, is Daniel chapter 7. And you're welcome to turn over there. Um, But I just want to remind you, uh, this is a picture, a dream uh, that Daniel has of four different beasts. And as he has this dream... Um, he's he's given this dream and told that these beasts will come and they will conquer one another. Now, these beasts look like lions and they look like bears. And as you look at these four beasts in chapter seven, verses one through eight, um, you start to see some parallels with what we're going to see in the beast today. Uh, They have crowns, they have horns, they conquer one another. And in fact, the fourth beast in Daniel's dream is most likely a picture of Rome itself. Rome that will come to conquer all of these other beasts or nations and will itself be a terrible beast and and will have dominion on the earth. It's not on accident that John or God revealing this to John is going to use some of these same types of pictures as were used in Daniel 7 to describe their interactions with the enemy and sometimes the enemy as he shows himself through governments and through Uh, things that happen on earth. And so I'm going to argue that Daniel seven stands in the background. And because of that, Rome as an entity puppet of the enemy stands in the background for John's audience first and foremost. So again, oftentimes we want to take what's going to happen in 12 and 13 and make it about something happening today. We need to ask this question. If John's audience wouldn't, would not have read it that way does that necessarily make sense? Would that make sense to them that it only applies to something 2,000 years later? And I'm going to argue no. I'm going to argue that if we see some similar things happening, it's because this is the way the enemy works over and over and over again. So it doesn't necessarily mean that no, that's not that. For instance, the idea of Antichrist. Um, Antichrist, by the way, in the Bible, is never found in Revelation. The word Antichrist is never found in Revelation. It's only found in John's letters, And there it's always plural, antichrist, plural. And what I want to argue is antichrists are those who are teaching against Christ, hence the word anti and Christ. Now, were there antichrists when John was writing his letters? Yes, there were, because that's why he's writing his letters. Are there antichrists now, people who are teaching against Christ? Yes, there are. What I want to argue is there's something spiritual behind them that is the same. And that's what we're looking at today, is that spiritual sameness that has been behind them from John's time on. By the way, look at the New Testament letters and see how many of them are dealing with false teachers. This is a similar problem. And so we're going to see once again that the enemy, Satan, uses two different forces to attack God's people. Number one, he's going to use power and authority to push God's people, to interrogate them, intimidate them, to persecute them. Number two, he's going to use false teaching. False teaching could be overt false teaching, something that is um, taught in a classroom, pulpit, church, or something more subtle, uh, an idolatry of a culture, a cultural seduction that pulls people away from God towards idolatry. And these two beasts are going to be the beasts that we're going to encounter. What I want to argue is these two beasts for John's audience had a one-to-one correlation. They were Rome and they were this false teaching of the imperial cult or of cultural, uh, some of the cultural idolatry that was existing in their, their cities. And these two beasts looked like that. And we're going to see echoes of that for John's audience. But do they still function in similar ways today? And I'm going to argue yes. So do you, do you hear what I'm kind of saying about that? And then at the end, we're going to talk about, and maybe even into next week, that number 666 and go, what, what does this mean? Because John even says it calls for hard wisdom, so let's have one and um, let's try to figure that out. Uh, so it's important for us to understand this is this is this mega story, this meta narrative that is taking place, and it's symbolic. Uh, John opens up in chapter twelve, verse one, saying, "And a great sign." In John's gospel, um, this word "sign" is the word that is oftentimes um, used to describe Jesus' miracles. Okay, this word "sign" can mean Uh, Something that is either symbolic or something that points to something. And in fact, if you count the miracles that happened in the book of John, the gospel of John, um, leading up to the resurrection, um, you can count seven of them. In fact, John starts to list them at the beginning. This is the first miracle that happened at Cana. This is the second miracle that happened at Cana. You start to read them. In fact, we've just been covering those with Mark over in the main service. Uh, John has seven of them leading up to what I think is the miracle, the resurrection. Why would John choose seven? Well, because for him, miracles are pictures. They, they really happened, But they're pictures of something about who Jesus was. And he chose intentionally. Now he says, if, I suppose at the end of his gospel, I suppose if we were to write down all the signs, all the things Jesus did, we'd, there would not be enough paper to write those things down. So John chose seven very intentionally. Because they painted a picture of who Jesus was. Now, this same word is used here. This sign, this thing that pointed to a greater reality um, appeared. It's this vision in heaven. Now, this may be heaven like as in where God dwells. Or heaven may be, from an earthly perspective, um, the the heavens being the sky. It doesn't really matter either way. But this this vision that John has is a vision that is otherworldly. It's beyond his world. And the first sign that appears is this character of a woman? And we want to notice some things about her. In fact, one of the things we want to ask, uh, and I had it originally in my notes, like A, B, C, D, here's some options. Um, so we're going we're gonna to spell those out, but I did not want you to go too far ahead. Okay? Um, so as we walk through, we want to ask, who is this woman? Uh, and that, that perhaps will help us know, what story is this, after all? Uh, this woman is clothed with the sun, and the moon is under her feet, and on her head were a crown of 12 stars. Now, that Joseph dream does give us a little bit of a, oh, 12 stars, moon. Is this God's people? 12 stars, the 12 tribes. But here's an interesting thing about it. This woman's also described a little bit like how the Greeks or Romans would describe a goddess in some of their myths, in some of of the Greek mythology, Roman mythology, um, which is somewhat interesting. Because this story stands out as a little bit unique in in the book of Revelation. Because it almost stands as um, a mockery of the myths that the people of Rome, the people of of kind of the Greco-Roman background would have believed in. Um, This woman kind of looks like her, but she's obviously not a goddess. Um, Some other things happen. Uh, But this this myth is, what I'm going to argue, is the story. It's set up as some of these myths that they were comfortable with um, knowing in the background, creation myths, and where did Rome come from, and, and how did this people group come about, and how did this war take place. They have, you know, mythology. Um, but this paints a picture that says, no, this is the story. And so it uses some similar imagery. And I think, I think there's a little bit of an overtone of saying, you have your stories, but this is, this is the story. And I think that's a little bit about what's going on here. Um, I do think there's there's bleed over from both the Joseph dream and the dream is there. So there's part of me that goes, is she Israel? Is this woman Israel? Remember, women in Revelation tend to, when they appear, symbolize or stand for the people that they are over. Um, that's not anything new, by the way, in the Bible. You read the book of Proverbs and wisdom is personified as a woman and those who follow after her or adultery is personified as a woman a prostitute in the Old Testament or in the book of Proverbs so it's not anything new that that a woman would represent a people group and so this woman um, perhaps Israel. that's one of our questions is she that she's pregnant she's crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth now this is the first time I've caught this reading through this past week um, there's a little echo of like the creation curse here, isn't there? There's going to be a conflict with the serpent, with the, with the dragon here. And she's giving birth and she has birth pains. Why? Because in the context, that's part of the curse. And my wife would say, yes, it is. And I would say, I have no idea. I don't want to know. Um, but at the same time, she's crying out and she's giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. And so now we have in heaven this great red dragon. Now that word great is the word mega and red, the only other time the, word, the, the color red appears is with that horse that is the horse of war. This is a conflict. The great red dragon has seven heads and ten horns. I read this to my kids the other day, and they're like, oh. right? He has seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads are seven diadems. Now, I don't know if this is coincidence or not, but when we look at the four beasts that represent four governments... Uh, Four empires, conquesting empires, the white horse and the red horse that ride. When we take all four of those beasts and count all of their heads, because one of them has multiple heads, there are seven heads that make up those four beasts. And and actually there's ten horns that make up those four beasts as well. This dragon seems to be, at least in this moment, kind of a conglomeration of all of those beasts together, or maybe all of those beasts are from him which would be accurate in how John and Daniel and the Bible would see those beasts as acting in Daniel chapter 7. But very much imagery-wise, um, heads, definitely on the, the side of this, the seven heads, it's looking like he's all-powerful, right? All-knowing. All, all um, even when it comes to the number seven and how we've seen God pictured with seven eyes of the Holy Spirit, horns for us are unique because we don't associate imagery with horns. Um, but for the ancient world, they did. Uh, horns represented power, represented king, represented reign. And in fact, in Daniel 7, or even flipping the page into the next few visions in Daniel, as the nations w- wage war against each other, they butt heads against each other, and their, their horns are broken off, or they have ten horns, and, and horns grow up and grow out. Horns represent rulers and power and reign. And, and again, this is a of God, who is the ruler and all-knowing and powerful one and reigns. So this serpent is trying to look or imitate him. Nothing new when it comes to the deceiver. And, and what I want us to also recognize is that there's some pictures here that we want to kind of in our um, Western world, especially how we typically read the Bible when it comes to like Paul's letters, we want to go, when did this happen? Was this 70 AD? Was this 33 AD? Was this pre-creation, post-fall? When was this? And this narrative doesn't necessarily have the same purposes in mind that we always want. For instance, this next verse, um, I'm not sure exactly, and I don't think the Bible nails down when this happened. His tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven. Now, stars in Revelation have have already represented angels. So so angels follow after him. Fallen angels is one of the ways we've described this. Uh, A third of the stars out of heaven, and they are cast to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman... Who is about to give birth and so part of me goes okay is this all one moment well we're getting ready to look at something that looks like the christmas story and what i want to say is make sure that you recognize this is a telescope story where something can be happening in big swaths of time and and we can't necessarily nail it down and go this happened right before the christmas story but there are some things we can begin to nail down a little bit later so he has with him this rebellious army and they go, against, they go against this woman. They stand before the woman. This is quite the picture, by the way, right? The dragon who was there at a birth of a baby. Now, my professor in seminary revelation class, um, his wife would get out their nativity set at Christmas time. Uh, Shane Wood, uh, Ozark, good friend of mine who studied with me in seminary, does the same thing. Um, he would bring a red dragon that he bought at like the toy store out and set it up over the nativity. And she would take it down and he would bring it back out and put it back out, right? And, and this kind of became their tradition. And, and I've heard one author write about that, that story, that tradition that they had, because he's taught several uh, different people I know, and, and said maybe they were both right, um, because the, the dragon does appear to, to be there, and yet at the same time, he's really insignificant when it comes to the story, because he doesn't really have power there. He thinks he has power. He has imitation power. But that's the story. Now, this is similar to a lot of other birth struggle stories, both in the Bible, but also in Greek and Roman mythology. Again, I think John is saying, or the vision that John is given is saying, but this is the story. This is the struggle. And so this woman is about to give birth. The dragon is there. And, uh, and so that when she bore her child that he might devour it, she gave birth to a male child. Now, nothing happened. But you can't help, I imagine... But read the Christmas story into that and maybe read Herod the Great into that and read that as Jesus was born, it appears that the dragon is working behind the scenes in the political government in corrupt people in the powers that be in the world. And he is ready to extinguish this male child that this woman is about to give birth to. But what happens? God provides a way out and the baby is is delivered to Egypt. That's where they escape to. They, they run to Egypt, and he's, he's rescued, he's provided for. Now, even that Christmas story is much like Israel's story, where they're led out of Egypt rather than into Egypt, but they're led out of harm's way, out of Pharaoh's hands. So the question becomes, who is this woman? Let's come back to that question. Is it Israel? She looks like Israel, the 12 stars, the moon. Um, is it Mary? She looks like Mary, giving birth to a male child. In fact, the male child. Now, verse five, she gave birth to a male child, the one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. There's our Psalms text that those who knew their Old Testaments would have picked up on that—that that messianic text. He's the one that's to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into His throne. Well, that's the ministry of Jesus in like a microscope or a, a telescope, isn't it? I mean, it's very much. He was born and he was ascended. Um, but that's how this story plays out, and this, it, it's going to go ahead and just speed through some things. He was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman, she fled into the wilderness uh, where she had a place prepared by God. And she was nourished for that, and there's that three and a half years number again. Pro, yep, 1260 days. And if you were with us uh, last week, uh, last couple of weeks, one of the things we said about this three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 days is this very much in Revelation as well as in Daniel seems to be symbolized, seems to symbolize a period of struggle or difficulty or maybe um, as John would describe it, tribulation. And, and yet it's going to be something that God's going to deliver us not from, but through. And there's a difference. God never promises to deliver us from tribulation. What he does is he promises that even though we go through it, he'll deliver us out of it. Remember Jesus' promise, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, This, by the way, is the book of 2 Timothy, uh, Paul to Timothy. Um, You can endure, keep the good deposit, and so even in Revelation, the promise isn't, and I'm going to just throw this out there, isn't rapture from tribulation. You're not going to find that in Revelation unless you read into it some other things, even from uh, Thessalonians, but even the Western world that says uh, we don't want to struggle. That, that's not the New Testament world. They were already in tribulation. Rescued from that just meant the end. And so this rescue is through tribulation and then final judgment. And so we have this three and a half number here. Now the question becomes this, is this Israel, is this Mary, or is this woman the church? Because we're going to find out that her offspring, uh, or that, well, that Jesus is already gone, but here she is, she's being delivered into into this wilderness where she is going to be delivered, so where she's going to be nourished. And again, you could almost read stories like Elijah into this where Elijah has a conflict with the prophets of Baal, and he's led into the wilderness, and he's taken care of by ravens, and he's fed. Um, You can read some stories into this. You can read manna in the wilderness, how God takes care of his people even when they are struggling. So this woman is led into the wilderness, and she is nourished there much in the same way he has always nourished his people when they are led into the wilderness. We're going to come back and kind of fill in some of these gaps, but I want to look ahead. Now, war arose in heaven. And again, we want to say, when... Is this at the cross, at the resurrection? Well, we've kind of already dealt with that. Um, war arose in heaven, and Michael. Now, I've written two texts for you. Michael, this angel, appears in the book of Daniel in the conflict that Israel has with the nations that are over it. And there seems to be a spiritual battle that's going on behind the battles we have here on earth. And, and we'll come back to Michael, but Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon. Michael appears to be, and I don't understand how all of the hierarchy in, in in heaven and in God's created realm of angels works, but Michael appears to be um, of a hierarchy in, in control or in charge of, delegated authority over angels. And this is a story of conflict between Michael, a delegate of God, and this dragon. We'll come back to him. And the dragon and his angels, they fought back. But again, how do you fight God? So notice, he was defeated, and there was no longer place for him or them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient, here's our serpent word, the ancient serpent, Genesis chapter 3, who is called the devil and Satan. Now those two words overlap a little bit, those two names for this, this same being. Devil uh, is this word for uh, enemy enemy or someone who is in opposition, uh, and Satan being the word for accuser, but there's some overlap there. And we also have this phrase that describes him, the deceiver of not only Adam and Eve, but now of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, and this paragraph, this little song uh, that is here, I think is going to help clarify some things for us of when are we talking about. And one of the arguments I'm going to have for us um, is that when it comes to most of our uh, notion about when Satan is cast out of heaven, most of it actually comes from the Middle Ages rather than from the Bible. It comes from myths that we built around what we know in the text, but also filling in the gaps of what we don't know in the text which we're not alone in doing that when it comes to kind of the Western church of the Middle Ages. Um, The Jews did this as well with their own stories. Um, They had stories around their stories that told, for instance, there's a story about Daniel um, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, that has kind of some gaps filled in of what happened with the fiery furnace and what happened with this idol that was out in the middle. Remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow down to? Some of the rabbis... Said that that image was a dragon that they were supposed to bow down to. Now, I don't know if that's what John has in mind here, but some of the stories that were being told, some of the stories around the story that were being told um, that Jewish rabbis had, were stories like that, where they were filling in some gaps. And so we've done that a little bit with Satan as well. We want to know more. Is this at the beginning of creation when he's cast down, or or maybe when his tail sweeps down, stars out of heaven? Is this at the cross when he's cast out of heaven? because he no longer has the ability to accuse. That tends to be where I land. Not when, he's, not when he sweeps the angels out from heaven. That seems to happen somewhere earlier, even pre-creation, because there he is as a serpent in the garden, ready to tempt Eve and Adam. At the same time, he no longer has this place that we see him in the Old Testament with Joshua the high priest, with Job in the book of Job, this place at the throne to accuse God's people. And so he's cast down. And this paragraph tends to, kind of re, tends to reinforce that. Notice what it says. Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. Now notice the mockery of this imitation. Notice these words. Salvation, power, kingdom, authority, and even the word Messiah. Satan isn't in control. God is in control. He is already conquered. And this has come when, well, the accuser, that's Satan's name, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. Now, that's interesting. Not only has God conquered, but believers have conquered. This is that word overcome at the end of every one of those churches and the seven churches to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes. This is that same word. This is a big theme in Revelation. They have overcome, they have conquered him. How? Two ways. By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. How is Satan conquered in Revelation? It's not through uh, shields and swords. It's through words and through the sacrifice of Jesus. How do we overcome the dragon? This is a big question, right? I mean, my kids would ask this question if I was telling them a story about a dragon at night. Dad, how do they win? And, And dragons... Happen like J.R.R. Tolkien says in the best of stories has to have a dragon, and and so uh, dragons happen in stories all the time. Dad, how did they win? The word of their witness and the blood of the Lamb, and this last part, for they didn't love their lives so much um, to be to escape death. Or the way the ESV puts it, they loved their li- they loved not their lives even unto death. Uh, in other words, um, they were willing to. Sacrifice their life just as Jesus did on the cross. How do they conquer the lamb or the dragon? They look like the lamb, they speak like the lamb, they live like the lamb, they die like the lamb, and they conquer him through that. And so, verse 12 Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows his time is short. This is where I'm going to argue from the song is the picture, at least here, whether the metaphysics line up with the picture, the picture is what the revelation is trying to, to teach us in this lesson. And, and one of the pictures is this, is that Satan knows that he can't win. He, he knows that he is conquered. In fact, some of the things that he had as tools against God's people have been, have been taken from him. Some of the, and I would say this weapons accusation has been robbed from him. He can no longer accuse. Number two, death. They, they didn't love their lives even so much to, to death. Why? Because they knew they could be raised just like the lamb who was standing next to the throne. He could no longer use death as an intimidation tool. Now he's going to try in the next beast. And one of the things they're going to say as Christians is, if into captivity we shall go, okay, at captivity we shall go. If to the sword, okay to the sword. Why? Because what can, what's the worst that man can do to us? Kill us with a sword? and so we go be with Jesus? So Satan's tools of intimidation have been robbed. Now what does he still have? Deception, false teaching, and even in that intimidation. And so he is going to be wrathful against this woman, and what we're going to see is, and her offspring. So the story picks back up. When does this happen? When is he cast down? I, I think this is a picture, by the way, of what happens with Jesus at the cross and the resurrection. In fact, Jesus himself, I think in John 12, at the bottom of his page, John 12, 28, tells us the same thing. A voice comes from heaven. By the way, the voice sounds like thunder, which I thought was interesting because God's voice often sounds like thunder in Revelation. Remember, this is John's gospel, verse 30. Jesus answers about this voice. This voice came for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, speaking of the time of the cross, he's heading that way. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Does that sound like what we've been talking about? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people from myself. Jesus himself seems to say the authority of Satan will be crushed in this moment. Uh, Similar to that Genesis 3.15 text that says at some point the serpent's head is going to be crushed. By the way, if you watch Mel Gibson's *The Passion of the Christ*, there's a scene of Jesus stepping on the head of the snake. Okay, that's not in the Bible, and yet it is in the Bible. That's you know Mel Gibson kind of doing a Revelation kind of moment, picking up on an image and tying that image in there. Um, so then we have this beast that comes down uh, in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the uh, the woman, so that uh, who had been given birth, who had given birth to the male child. Excuse me. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place she is to be nourished for a time, times, and a half a time. Again, time, time, times, and half a time. So we have one, two, and a half. We have three and a half years again, or this period of three and a half. And, And again, by that, I'm not talking three and a half literal years. I'm saying this is a short time. It's not seven Half of seven. We weigh numbers in Revelation. So it's not eternity, it's not forever, it's not a complete time, it's just a short time. And so she's going to be nourished, just like Israel was nourished. Notice this keeps happening to the woman as she goes. She keeps getting rescued from the dragon. And the child gets rescued from the dragon. And God nourishes her. Now, is it still so difficult? Yeah. So, so what is this saying? Let me ask this question and pause here for just a moment. What is this saying to Job's audience? It's not going to be easy. God's gonna take care of you. He's gonna rescue you. He's gonna, it's not gonna be forever. But you're gonna face trouble. You're gonna face the enemy. The enemy is real. And and I think there's something comforting about that to go, this isn't just accidental that you're suffering. Like it, it isn't just incidental. This is this is a battle. This is part of the story, and you're a part of it. This is part of the epic story, and you're a part of it. Then verse 15 is an interesting picture. The serpent pours out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. So picture this river flowing, which already in Revelation, water has represented evil over and over and over and over again. And at the end of the book of Revelation, there's not going to be any sea, but there's going to be a water of life, a river of life. And maybe there's pictures of like the Red Sea moment or the Jordan River crossing moment, moments of this where God's people encounter water And water is very much a barrier to them being able to complete or get to what God wants them to do. And somehow God, through the earth, creates this moment where he, again, provides for them and, and frees them and rescues them. That happens here. Um, this river flows out after. It's this epic story. How are they going to escape? The earth comes to their help, and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows up the river. And again, Satan's plan is thwarted. When does this happen? I think, again, this is just that river of things that keep coming against God's people. I don't want to make a one-to-one correlation and go, this is what that happened in that year. This is what we experience over and over again. The dragon then becomes furious with the woman, went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who are her offspring? Who is this woman? This, I think, helps us understand. Her offspring are on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So who is this woman? We know who her offspring are. They are believers in Christ, believers in the Messiah, those who hold the testimony of Jesus, those who keep the commandments of God. I would argue that the answer to is this uh, woman, is this Israel... Is this woman Mary? Uh, In fact, I would even have the word Eve up here. Is she Eve? Is she um, the church? I would answer this by saying yes. Yes, she is. She is a picture of God's people. She is a picture of God's people. And in fact, um, Eve very much stands as a representative person of God's people who sometimes fail, sin. And need God's forgiveness, needs God's grace. Um, but at the same time, even in this Genesis 3.15 text with her, there's this promise that even though she messed up, God's going to bring about something good. He's going to bring about a Messiah who will finally discipline, destroy that snake. And so from the very beginning, Eve somewhat stands as that. And even in Mary, I think sometimes in, in uh, Protestant churches, uh, we too easily dismiss Mary as a minor character. She's a pretty significant character in the Bible and in the Gospels. Let's not too easily dismiss her. Now, she's the one who, uh, you know, stands to the angel and says, let it be unto me as you said. That's not a bad thing to say to God when he comes to you and says, um, I, have, I have something for you to do.
1: Um,
0: she, she is the one who's there at the cross. Uh, she's there at the resurrection. She's, she's there all along during this. And so I think these, very much, these two women uh, end up standing for um, being pictures of God's people, Israel, and the church together. Um, in fact, if you read Paul in some other places, he's going to pick up on some of that as well. He uses um, Hagar and, um, and, and, and different ladies, Sarah, and, and those types of people uh, throughout the, his letters as pictures of God's people. So this woman tends to, be, uh, tends to be a picture of all of God's people. Now her offspring, obviously, are pictures of not only John's church, but therefore the generations that come after us. And what is this story ultimately saying? we are being pursued, because the dragon knows his time is short, but he has some ability to um, pour out his wrath here. And as we turn the page in this story, uh, with about 15 minutes today, which means we won't finish both of these, um, we turn the page and we get to see um, a beast that comes from this dragon. So how is he going to pursue? These beasts become part of that answer of how the dragon is going to pursue Those who are God's people on earth. And so this first beast comes out of the sea. We're going to see one out of the sea and one out of the land. Similar to the dragon. Notice how these beasts. Yes, exactly. Notice how these beasts look not only like the dragon, but also imitate God or the lamb. So again, ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And by blasphemous names, it's names that. Slander God, Mock God. Now This is that same idea, mockery of God. By slanderous names, part of that could, or, or slanderous or, or blasphemous names, uh, could be names, uh, for instance, like names that Domitian required people to call him. Like, I don't know, uh, names that the Caesars liked to call him, Morning Star, God, this sort of thing. So the Caesars, in fact, on the coins, if you start to look at some of the the coins from the Roman era, um, love to be pictured much in the same way, kind of like the woman, uh, the the woman in our previous chapter, chapter 12, um, with stars and moons and those types of things as a god. And so this beast looks similar to that. Verse 2, and the beast I saw was like a leopard. This is right out of Daniel 7, by the way. Those beasts that represented kingdoms and empires, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's. We need to hear Daniel seven in this and go, "Oh, this is a this is a nation," and this beast represents government, political entities, empires, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his authority. Remember when Jesus was taken up on that great high mountain and told, um, look at the kingdoms of the earth. Um, If you bow down to me, I will give you this authority. Now, I find it ironic that as soon as Jesus gets uh, away from the the temptation uh, moment, um, one of the first things that happens, especially in the book of Luke, is that he encounters someone possessed by a demon, and he has the authority to cast out the demon. Now, Jesus has real authority. Satan's authority is a mockery. It's imitation. Uh, but at the same time, there are those who buy into the temptation that Jesus denied. Right? I mean, they want earthly power. Thrones and authority. It's imitation. It's not real. But they follow after not only the dragon, but they look like this beast. They they fall into this, this, this deception. One of its heads, now, this is intriguing to us because we're like, what is going on here? One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound had healed, kind of like the lamb who was slain. Remember, it's a mockery. Now, there's some background to this that's possible. We'll talk about it in just a moment. The whole earth marvelled as they uh, as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given its authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, "Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it?" Now, that, that's something that should only be said about God. Who can fight against God? But we say this about empires, don't we? Who can fight against that? And they said this about Rome. Now, I want to talk just a bit about some of their own stories uh, when it comes to Rome and some of their, some of their own uh, myths. Um, one of those is of the story of Romulus and Remus, two brothers. Now you can read this story online in quite a few places. Um, and perhaps there's some historicity to it. Most likely it's completely a myth. But two twin brothers. Um, and they were raised. Their father was not the king, but their uncle was the king. And, and they, as they were born, their uncle uh, wanted to uh, kill them uh, because they were actually the rightful heirs to the throne. And so he left them on a river. Now, we just had a dragon trying to kill people through a river. I don't know if there's a correlation here, but he left them in a river. Now, they floated down the river, and they were rescued. And um, they were raised by a, a she-wolf. Um, in fact, the picture of Rome's founding is of a giant she-wolf um, nursing these two boys. Odd picture, but there it is. And and these two boys are raised there. Now, this is at the place of the founding of Rome in the myth, uh, the seven hills of Rome. And the two boys decide where they want to found this city. And they can not agree on the two hills, on which hill they're going to have it on. There's different versions of the myth. But one of the versions of the myth is that Romulus, hence the name Rome, um, kills his brother, his twin brother. Or the other version of the myth is that followers after Romulus, um, those who were in his political camp, um, killed him. But... There's not much distinction between either one of those, right? And so Romulus ends up being the conqueror, and he ends up being the one who names the city, the city, the empire is named Rome. They have their own myths. Now one of those myths also comes at a time when Rome was going through, um, I'm just going to call it economic downturn. We've kind of had those from time to time, and we do crazy things during economic downturns when it comes to nations and empires. We do crazy things, vote weird people in, things like that. So in the midst of this, um, in the midst of this uh, time, Nero, was Nero, for us, was kind of a crazy guy. Like, right, lights fires, plays violins, kills Christians, like, we see him that way. When it came to, like, the economy, um, he was actually fairly strong. And, and so Nero had, you know, different people who viewed him different ways, but for a while he was quite popular because the, the economy and the, the, uh, the peace of Rome, the solidarity of Rome was, was very much intact for part of his reign. Um, of course, when he commits suicide, um, he commits suicide... Um, by sword and, and this myth raises up about him because after his death uh, there's kind of this dissension and we have multiple emperors who reign and, and the economy starts to collapse and, and there's this myth that comes that Nero's going to be resurrected, that he's going to come back, like Elvis. I mean we have, my mom thought that all the time, right? Elvis is not really dead. Uh, they had this myth about Nero that he would come back. Now whether they believed it would be Nero himself or someone like Nero is, that, that's not that doesn't matter. Uh, that myth was there. And, and I think there's a little bit of an echo in this mortal wound on his head and this Nero myth that was in existence that Nero would come back and restore Rome to its greater power, to its greater days, to its glory days. Make, a, make Rome great again kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying that Trump or Obama or any one of those is this person. Here's what I'm going to say. If we're not careful, at times, we can put our faith in something that is not worthy of us putting our faith in. And I just say that as, as a believer? Okay, And that's not Republican nor Democrat. It's just if I put my security in, my hope in, my trust in something, it's going to let me down. And it does. And, um, and it can be corrupt at times. It can also be used by God. So I also want to say that. Because at times, governments can be followers after God and followers after his design for justice and his design for care and compassion. And it can have that kind of a design to it as well. And it kind of depends. Again, is it listening to the dragon or to the lamb? Uh, But in this case, Rome is the picture that's painted here, okay? And so what we have to go is, does this look like, and we have to ask our context, does it look like America? But perhaps we also go, does it look like North Korea? Does it look like China that persecutes Christians? Yeah, at times it does. And we have to ask some of those questions. And so we have this, uh, this question, who can make war? Who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Haughty, meaning arrogant, who can conquer me, God couldn't even oppose us, those types of things, right? And blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for these 42 months, this short period of time. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, remember Rome, by the way, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, um, just this week, I was, I was reading a newspaper article, um, the, the Arch of Titus, if, you have, if you've never seen it, by the way, you, you need to Google it, the Arch of Titus, um, it was a monument, still exists in Rome, um, I'd love to go, uh, it still exists in Rome, it's an arch that, that memorializes the destruction of Israel and the Jerusalem Temple. And on the inside of that arch is uh, the Roman armies of Titus, Domitian's brother, carrying back the menorah, or the lampstands, the lampstands we've already seen, back to Rome, the treasures of the temple. And just recently I read an article that they've actually discovered a second archway that was at the Circus Maximus, uh, which um, is being constructed uh, during this time frame. And so the second archway would be an anomaly. Normally you only got one. And most likely what's going on is Domitian, um, this emperor here behind this story, uh, is struggling uh, to kind of... Uh, with his popularity and one of the ways to regain popularity is through massive architectural expansions building things infrastructure well he's building circus maximus but he also wants to commemorate this destruction of jerusalem and so he there's actually a second archway that's one of the main entryways into circus maximus that they're just discovering and start to unearth right now so twice they're commemorating the destruction of the dwelling place of god in jerusalem (laughs) And now the dwelling place of God is not on earth, but it is here in heaven. I find that interesting, um, that that very much we have that that connection. Verse 7, this beast was allowed to make war. Now notice the word allowed. It's a divine passive. We've seen that already. It's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Intriguing. But what does conquer them mean? And obviously we have to read on. And authority was given over every tribe, people, language, Nation, there's the four that dwell on the earth. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Now, remember, earth dwellers are different from those who are believers. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And we're going to talk about these books later. I don't want to get into it today, but we're going to get into these books. There seems to be two sets of books. I think there are pictures. I don't know if there are books. But this, the books are, are you a citizen of this world or a citizen of the Lamb? Is he your Caesar? Is he your God? And so the, the contrast is between those who worship this beast and those who worship the Lamb. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Jesus said this quite often. right? This comes out of Isaiah. Um, don't let your ears be clogged or hardened. And this is, our, this is our lesson from this beast. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. That sentence, I believe, is the lesson of the first beast. Is that as believers live in this world and as they are at conflict in conflict with the dragon, but because the dragon works through this first beast, When they're in conflict with this beast, who is a puppet of the dragon, one of the ways they respond is in faith, by just going into captivity, by just going to the sword, knowing that God or the Lamb ultimately has conquered. That will not win the day. And again, kind of that that idea, what can man, what Paul says, what can man do to us? can't do anything to us, because we follow the one who has conquered. So, so really, as we go into next week, which we'll need the full 30 or 45 minutes next week to talk about the, the second beast, um, I'm going to picture these, these two beasts as being, number one, government that is used by the dragon to push God's people, persecute God's people, intimidate God's people, maybe even through economic hardship, intimidate God's people. And I think as we come to the beast next week, we're going to see it being more of a pull, a false teaching, a deception, um, as well as a, a luring of God's people toward it to be marked. Now, the contrast there is we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, but those who follow that second beast are going to be marked by the beast. And, and my argument is going to be it's not something physical, just like the seal that we're sealed with is not something physical. So we don't have to worry about getting a tattoo. We don't have to worry about like, some sort of like digital code tracking device. I don't know that we have to worry about any of those. I mean, you might not want to get one, um, but I don't know that you have to worry about those being the mark of the beast that say you compromise. However, here's what I'd say. If you have the beast's name on you that says you belong to him, that I would worry about. And, and I think that looks more like how we live our lives, uh, following the lamb versus compromising and following the dragon. And I think that's going to play out in that way as we come to next week. Um, I'm going to go ahead and shut off the recording, and I'll hang around in a few minutes if you all have questions. And I know uh, next week will be the big one because we didn't get to 666 today. So thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.